Well, hey everyone, my name is Steven and I am one of the pastors here at Journey Church. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to this message. We pray that this helps you on your walk with Jesus, but also that it encourages you to get plugged into a local community of believers. Hey, if 2020 taught us anything, it's that being isolated from others is not how God intended us to live. So be sure to use this resource in conjunction with being plugged into your local church. Hey, we hope you enjoy this message from God's Word. Well, thank you for joining us today. Hopefully you had a very good Memorial Day weekend last weekend and have had a great week this week. Um, I want to especially thank the band up here today as they led us in our time of worship. Uh, thanks to uh, Lale and Nicole up here for uh, leading in their, their vocals. And then we had Ben, Chuck, and Judy as well. And we are so grateful for the service that they give to the church by all of the uh, leading of praise and worship. They're, they're not the only ones on our team, obviously. You know that. We have a great worship team, and I'm very thankful for them. Today we are back in our series called Living a Godly Life in an Ungodly World. We have this week and then one final message from the series that we are going to be looking at next week. And what we have been talking about and what this has been based upon is the verse that comes out of 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 10 through 12, but primarily where it says this, since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people should you be? And I take that personally, what kind of a person should I be? How should I live? What should I be like? How should my life look? How should my life be different? Well, the answer that Peter gives under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is this. Live your lives in holiness and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Your life should be different your life should be holy. My life should be different. My life should be holy. Things should change because of my relationship with the Lord and especially looking at the coming of the Lord again, his return. It's inevitable. He talked about it. He prophesied about it. He told us what to be looking for and the signs are starting to line up around us. In light of that, become holy and godly in the way that you live your life. What we've been looking at through this was the story of King Asa. Now, King Asa from Second Chronicles, you can also uh, read about him in, in uh, I believe it's in Second Kings as well that you can read, about, actually I think maybe it's First Kings, that you can read about him, you can hear more about his story, but we have been looking at his story out of Second Chronicles chapters uh, 14, 15, and 16 as we have been studying this. Let me give you a quick reminder of what we have come from. Asa did not follow in the footsteps of his father or his grandfather. His father and his grandfather had let idolatry come into the nation. Israel had divided in two by the time those men took over and were part of the reign of, of that country. It had been divided in two. You had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah right under that. King Asa was the king of Judah. Again, he did not follow in his father's footsteps. He determined he was going to be different. His grandfather and his father, full of idolatry, letting idolatry come in, a lot of pagan worship. They had turned away from God, but King Asa turned back to God. He turned the country back to God. He stepped in and he began to make sure that the country was worshiping God. He cleared out the land. He got rid of anything that God would be displeased with. 
Again, that's a great reminder of what holiness and godliness looks like. Getting rid of in your life anything that God would be displeased with. If you were to have a one-on-one personal conversation with God, would he be pleased with your life? Would there be anything in your life that he would put his finger on and say, this is not okay? Maybe the language that you use, the attitude that you have, the thoughts that you have, the, the uh, desires of your heart, would he put his finger on anything and say, this has to change, this is not okay? Asa did that with the land. He got rid of the things that were contrary to God so that the land could be a place where we could start to worship God in holiness and godliness. What we saw was the result that Asa and the land of Judah had 10 years of rest. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a battle came upon them. They faced a battle that they were not expecting, that they were not anticipating, and that they were not looking for. It just came upon them. From the south, from the lands of of Africa, came the Cushites, who would come into the land of Judah and want to conquer and take over the land. The Cushites would outnumber those in Judah two to one. It was impossible odds and an impossible situation. But in the midst of that, they expressed their desire to follow God. God, we are powerless. We desperately need you. God, we are confident in you. God, we are committed to you. And the Lord came through in a miraculous way, and he fought the battle for them. In fact, they had incredible victory. They destroyed the army, and they, in fact, followed the army and actually plundered areas that the army had conquered, taking treasures back to the land of Judah. God was with them every step of the way. Following the battle, we saw the fact that they came back to the land and there was this great reminder of what God expects and what God desires for them, for his people. God loves it when we pursue him. God is honored when we pursue him. When there is an absence of God in our lives, there is darkness. There is darkness in the land. There is darkness in our homes. There's darkness in our hearts when there's an absence of God from us. God will do things to intervene to bring his people back to him. And God will reward and bless when we follow him. And the reward that we get is the resulting shalom that we all desire. Now, we've talked about that. That's the wholeness, completeness, fullness that we get from God when he is there in our lives. Well, last week we looked at and we saw that once God reminded them of what he wants, the people said, yes, we agree, and they made a covenant with him. A covenant with God was more than a contract. The covenant picture is identified and symbolized in the marriage relationship. A covenant is something that is personal, a personal decision that you enter into. It is something that is permanent, binding, and enduring. It often costs us something. It may cost you relationships. It may cost you uh, possessions. It may cost you friendships that you've had because God wants you to turn away from things that pull you away from him. But we also saw that there is an incredible reward to making a covenant. And the reward for the people was that for the next 20 years that they were going to have peace and that they were going to have rest in the land. Well, today we are looking at the, the fifth of six messages, and the message today is entitled this, God is Searching. Let's pray as we begin and jump into God's word here today. 
Father, we thank you that we can come together today to worship you in community, that we can come to worship you uh, and lift up and praise your name. Lord, this time is not about us. It's not about the worship team. It's not about me. This is, this is all about you, Lord. <clears throat> May this not be my words, but your words spoken to us today. I pray, Father, that you would take my feeble attempts to speak your word and endure it with power from the Holy Spirit. And let it land upon every heart and every mind, upon every ear. Help us to hear the things that we need to hear, both conviction and encouragement. Lord, we give this time to you. We want you to speak to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Do you know that every year at Christmas and at birthdays, children will often give you a list of requests. They will give you a litany of requests of things that they would like this year for their birthday or for Christmas. Most of those requests that they have are based upon uh, what they see on TV, on social media, what their friends have. They want the latest gadgets and the latest clothing. They want the latest possessions that will make them feel good. They come to you with those lists. And as parents, we love to bless our kids and we love to do things for our kids. At some point, though, Something has to change because instead of our kids being selfish, we want them to grow to maturity. If they are still coming with a litany of requests, it's all about them when they have reached the age of 30 or 40 or even beyond, there's a problem. Kids need to at some point switch gears and start thinking about my parents. What would they like? What would they want? What can I do for them? How can I bless them? Do you know that that's often the same way it is with God? We often come to God with wanting things from God. God, bless me. God, take care of me. God, do this for me. Instead of thinking about, God, what do you want? What is your plan? What will make you happy, God? What is your desire for my life? We need to start approaching God in that way. Instead of always coming with requests to God, we begin to come to God with, God, what is your desire? What is your plan? We're going to learn that today as we go through this next part of the story. We're also going to share in communion today. Hopefully when you came in, you picked up a communion cup. It has the wafer with it as well. If you did not get one, make sure that you just uh, uh, talk to an usher or go right out and grab one of these because we're going to do this at the end of the service or the sermon here today. 20 years had gone by since King Asa had his battle. 20 years had gone by since they had made this covenant before God. 20 years is a long time. In 20 years, one of the things that begins to happen is people start to get complacent and they start to get apathetic. Have you ever gotten complacent and apathetic in your life? The word apathy just means indifference. It's like having no more emotion. It is the idea of having no interest or no concern. Laziness comes out of apathy. And do you know that apathy is one of Satan's biggest plans to use to attack God's people? He wants to get God's people apathetic and indifferent toward God. I have always found it fascinating when I look at some of the things that would be considered cults, things that do not follow Jesus. They are committed to something that is different than Jesus. They do not believe in Jesus, the crucified, risen Savior who died in our place, the Son of God. So these cults that do not believe that, 
they become very, very committed to their, to their jobs. They become committed to their religion, their cult activities. They are committed, whereas Christians become very, very apathetic. Most often, Christians are on fire for God, and then the fire goes out, and what is left is just an apathetic movement toward God. Are you apathetic? Have you reached that plateau where you don't feel on fire for God anymore? You feel indifferent toward God. You feel lack of emotion toward God. You feel lack of concern toward God. You've reached a laziness level with God. I think that that probably happened to the people of Judah in that 20 years of rest. When you have 20 years of ease, 20 years where there is nothing that is wrong, 20 years where life is relatively easy, it is easy to fall into apathy. I think the church in America has experienced that. We've experienced years of ease and comfort, and we are at rest, and therefore we become apathetic. The church in China, the church in India, The church in Afghanistan, the church in Iran, the church in Iraq, they don't experience that because they are under constant threat all of the time. And so to follow God means you are all in. There is no apathy in those places because you can't afford to be apathetic. And if you are apathetic, you will not have anything to do with God. 20 years, King Asa and the land of Judah would experience a level of apathy. But now, we're going to see that there is a new threat that is going to come upon them. Remember I said that Judah was the southern kingdom and Israel was the northern kingdom. Well now, all of a sudden, they are facing a pressure from what they think is the northern kingdom of Israel. The king of Israel, whose name was Basha, would come and set up a fortified city just across the northern border of Judah, the southern border of Israel, and they would set up a fortified city. Now, the reason that they were doing that was to try to fix the problem that they had of a very rebellious people that lived in the land of Israel. But King Asa didn't believe that. He didn't think that. He thought this was a prelude to war. So what did King Asa do? Did he do what he did before and call upon God and ask for God's direction and God's help? No, he had a better plan. He came up with his own plan, his own way that was contrary to what God wanted to do. The king of the north, the Israel kingdom, setting up this fortified city really had nothing to do with Judah, but Asa thought it did. So what Asa did was he went around Israel to the kingdom of Syria. He went to Syria and the king of Syria, he made a bargain with the king of Syria. King Asa took all of the money that he had dedicated to the Lord from his previous years, he took it out of the temple, and he gave it in this contract with the king of Syria. That was going to come back to bite him. The contract said this, I want you to attack Israel so that they leave us alone and we can take over their fortified city and we can build up our troops. Well, that was a plan and it actually worked, but it was not God's plan. And God was very, very displeased with what King Asa did. In fact, in Hebrews eleven six, it says this, Now without faith, it is impossible to please God. How do you feel when your children trust their friends more than they trust you? It's the same way with God. How does God feel 
when we trust in our own abilities and we trust in what we can see with our eyes and we trust, on, trust in what we can control rather than putting our trust and our faith in him. God would be displeased and they would pay the, the price because they would fight with the kingdom of Syria from that time on. Do you know that God's original plan was to take care of Syria so that they would not be a threat anymore? But because Asa stepped in thinking he had a better plan, they would now battle for generations to come. Have you ever, with God, thought you had a better plan? God had his way. He was going to do his thing. He was working out things behind the scenes, but you thought, well, I've got a better plan. I've got a better idea, and it turns out to bite you in the end. Well, let's look at the scripture today. And then I want to show you three things that God is searching for, that God expects, that God wants from me and from you, his people. Let's look at it together. Here's what the word of God says. Again, remember, 20 years had passed from the time of the battle. And though Asa started well, he's not going to end very well. In the 36th year of Asa's reign... King Bossa, they, they need to do something with the names in that day. You know, just, I'll just make that comment. <laughs> King Bossa of Israel marched against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from leaving or coming to King Asa of Judah. So what did he do? He came to the southern town of Ramah and he began to fortify this city. In response... Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord, the house of Adonai. He took money from the temple. And what did he do with it? Took money also from the royal palace, and he sent them to King Ben-Hadad of Aram. Now that would be Syria, who lived in Damascus. And he said to him these words, let there be a covenant between you and me. Remember what a covenant was, permanent, binding, enduring. Let there be a covenant, not a contract. Let there be a covenant between you and me as there was between my father and your father. Look, I have sent you gold or silver and gold. I want you to now go break the covenant you made with King Basha of Israel. So I'm going to make a new covenant. Now you go and break the agreement you had already made so that he will withdraw from me. Because if I can get him occupied on the northern border, he'll leave the southern border, and then we can take care of business on the southern border. So Ben-Hadad consented to King Asa's request and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel. They ravaged Aijan, Dan, Abelmaim, and all the storage cities of Naphtali. When Basa heard, he stopped building Ramah, he stopped his work. Then King Asa, when Basa was occupied and had to go to the north, now King Asa took up from Judah to carry away all the stones of Ramah and the timber which Basa had been building. So he went up to the city that they were fortifying, stole all of their goods, all of the lumber, all of the timber, all of the rocks, kind of what's happening in our society today. You're going around looking to steal timber or rock because it's so high priced. He went and he took all that they had been building. 
with what he just stole, he fortified Geba and Mizpah. At that time, a prophet, the seer, Haniah, came to King Asa of Judah and said to him, because you have depended upon the king of Aram, the king of Syria, and not depended upon Adonai, God, your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. So what is he saying? I had a plan. I was going to deal with Syria, but you thwarted my plan because of your meddling. Because you had a better idea, now we can't destroy them like we originally planned to. Way to go, King Asa. Then he says this. Were not the Cushites and the Libyans a mighty army with many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on Adonai, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of Adonai range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are wholly his. You, King Asa, have acted foolishly in this manner. Indeed, from now on, you will have wars. You were going to have peace. I was going to take care of it all. I was going to take care of everything, God says to King Asa. But because you stepped in and you had a better plan, now you're going to suffer four generations. Then Asa was angry. Who was he angry with? Angry at himself because he did what was wrong? No, he was angry at the prophet, the seer, and put him in prison. And he was enraged at him for this. He had misplaced and displaced anger. Instead of being angry at himself, humbly repenting before God, saying, I am sorry, I have done what is wrong, he took his anger out on the messenger. Have you ever done that? Instead of looking at yourself, you take your anger out on someone else. Maybe you take it out on your spouse. Maybe you take it out on your kids. Maybe you take it out on, on somebody who's bringing the message to you. You take your anger out instead of looking at your own heart and saying, what did I do wrong here? He was enraged at the prophet for just speaking the message, speaking the word of truth, and he threw him in prison. But that, it didn't stop there. Also, Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. He took it out on people around him. Behold, the acts of Asa from beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Now in the 39th year of his reign, he suffered personally. Asa became diseased in his feet. His illness was severe, probably crippling him. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek out an eye, but he sought the wisdom of men. He sought the wisdom of the physicians. Finally, Asa slept with his fathers, dying in the 41st year of his reign. He was buried in his own tomb, which he had hewn out for himself in the city of David. They laid him in his resting place, which was filled with sweet spices and various blended perfumes, and they made a very large fire for him. I want to show you three things from this about what God is really searching for. Asa started well, but Asa at the end had a heart. I wouldn't say he was completely against God. He was not completely anti-God. But at best, his heart was divided with God. There are three things from this that God is showing us 
about what he expects for you and I who are thousands of years removed from the story here in Gillette, Wyoming today. Let's look at these. Number one, God seeks people who trust him above all others. God seeks people who will trust him above all others. Is that you? Do you trust God above all others? Or do you trust in the money, the job, what a wise person that is in your life says over what God says? God seeks people who trust him above all others. Now let's look at what it said in the story. It says this, at that time, the prophet, the seer, uh, Hananah, I can't pronounce his name, came to King Asa of Judah and said to him, look what he said, because you have depended upon the king of Aram, where did you put your trust, King Asa? He put it in the king of Syria, a pagan king of a pagan country who is really the enemy. He put his trust there and depended upon him. Now, what does the word dependent mean? It means relied on, leaned into, trusted in, and rested in. Because you have depended upon someone or something other than God and not depended upon Adonai, your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. I was going to fix the situation, God is saying. I was going to take care of the real enemy, but you had a better idea. And because you leaned into him, trusted in him, relied upon him instead of in me, now you're going to suffer the consequences. We do that all the time. We put our trust in government. We put our trust in our economy. We put our trust in our finances. We put our trust in our companies and in our employers. We put our trust in our own abilities over God. And when you do that, consequences will happen. God wants people and seeks people who will say, God, I don't know how these things are going to work out. I'm not worried about how they work out. I trust you. There is no politician that I trust. I trust you, God. There is no amount of money I trust. I trust you. I don't trust the economy. I trust you. I'm not trusting in the doctors. God, I'm trusting in you. You have the ability to heal, and I will put my trust and my faith in you above all else. See, what King Asa demonstrated was the classic picture of a divided heart. Do you know what a divided heart is? A divided heart. Now, the heart in Scripture is synonymous with the word spirit. The heart is the seat of life. It's what the literal term is. In the Greek, the word heart is cardia. It's where we get our word cardiac from. The heart is what gives life to the physical body. If your heart is not beating, you will die. And so the heart was known as the spirit of mankind. It was the seat of life. A divided heart is this. It is somebody who has said, God, I do trust in you. I do want you in my life. I have accepted you in my life, but I want to be in control. There's still me. And so what happens is there is this great conflict that occurs between myself and God. There is a war of the wills. Before I knew the Lord, there was not a battle. Because before I knew the Lord, it was just all about me. 
But when I became a follower of Christ and Christ came into my life, now there is a battle that is going on, a war of my will versus God's will. And what it looks like is this. I want what I want. I want my desires. I want my plans. I want my will. I want my way. And God says, no, it's not about that. It's what God wants his desires, his plan, his will, and his way. And so there's this constant battle going forth of me versus God. Will you trust me with all your heart? Will you follow me? You say, yes, I will to a certain extent, but I want to be in control. See, God, I don't want to give up that thing. I don't want to change that thing. I don't want to do that thing. I want you in my life, but I don't want to have to change. See, God, you come along and let me lead. Because, God, it's my will, it's my way, it's my plan, it's my desires, it's my purposes for life. Asa was demonstrating that. There was this famous poem that was written, and it was written in 1971. So it's got a little bit of language in it that you can kind of pick up and you understand the scenes that were happening in 1971. 1971, it was a book written by a guy by the name of Wilbur Rees. And the book that he wrote was called Three Dollars Worth of God. And in that book, he said this poem. He says this, I would like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a warm, a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant, again, 1971 language, put in there for yourself, whatever modern day. I, I don't want enough of God to make me love a liberal. <laughs> I don't want enough of God. I don't want enough of God to make me, you know, love an immigrant. I don't want enough of God to make me love an illegal alien. I don't want enough of God to make me inconvenienced. He says, I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of a womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. See, that, that is the picture of what a divided heart really is. I want God, but I want him on my terms, and I want him on my way, and I want him when it's convenient, and I don't want enough to make me change. I just want enough to make me feel okay. God desires us to be all in, to be fully surrendered, to be fully given over to him and his leading. In fact, trust in God occurs 210 times in the Bible, 158 times in the Old Testament, 52 in the New Testament. It talks about this idea of trust. In Hebrew, the word trust means to lie down uh, extended on the ground. And the, the concept behind that is the picture of being vulnerable, being so comfortable that you are so exposed and so vulnerable. And, and I picture it kind of like, and this is not a good illustration, but I kind of picture it like my dogs. My dogs will just roll over and lie down in front of me and wag their tail. And I will rub their belly and they, they just, they're vulnerable, they're exposed. Now I'm not calling you a dog. I don't want you to think of that 
in your relationship with the Lord, but you think of just exposure, vulnerability. God, I trust in you. I put all of my heart into you. In the New Testament, in the Greek, it means to believe, to be convinced, to be persuaded of. So God is looking for people who will say, I trust you above everything else. In Psalm 37, it says this, Trust in Adonai and do good. Dwell in the land. Feed on faithfulness. Delight yourself in Adonai, and he will give you the requests of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, to Adonai. Trust in him, and he will do it. Adonai just being the Hebrew name for the Lord. Psalm 62, on God, my salvation and my glory is the rock of my strength. My refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart in his presence. God is our refuge. In Joshua chapter one, it says, have I not commanded you be strong? Do not be dismayed or terrified for Adonai, your God is with you wherever you go. Jeremiah 17 Jeremiah writes, blessed is the one who trusts in Adonai, whose confidence is in Adonai. For he will be like a tree planted by the water, spreading out its roots by the stream. It has no fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. It does not worry in a year of drought, nor depart from yielding fruit. Number one, God seeks people who will trust him above all else. Number two, quickly, God seeks people who will remember what he has done. Again, go back to the story. And let, let me just show you this. It says this. Now, I want you to go back in Asa's timeline 20 years ago. Here's what he's saying. He's talking about the past. Remember, 20 years ago, King Asa, were not the Cushites and the Libyans a mighty army that outnumbered you two to one with many chariots and horsemen? Yet... Because you relied on Adonai, he delivered them into your hand. He, what is he calling him to do? Remember what I have done. Remember my faithfulness. Do you know that remembering what God has done is one of the key things that he wants us to do? Remembering is such a good principle of life. I, Jennifer and I, we, we've been married 30 years. We will often sit down and we will reflect upon events and things that have happened in the past 30 years. We'll look at pictures together. And the pictures will be a good reminder of things we have experienced in 30 years of marriage. We'll often reflect upon the kids. And remember when, when uh, Alyssa did this when she was little and what she used to say. And remember when Andrew and he did this and he's, oh, he was so, uh, such a precious little kid. And, uh, you know, remember Abigail and Angela. We just, we go through the litany of all of our kids because remembering you feel so much closer. Well, it's the same thing with God. When you remember and you reflect upon what he has done, you are filled with that emotion. It breaks through the levels of apathy in our lives. Remembrance is something that he tells us often. Deuteronomy 6, as the people were about to go into the promised land and they were preparing for going into the promised land, God wanted them to remember what he had done and where he had brought them from. Look what it says. Now, when Adonai, your God, brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns dug that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant and you will eat and are full, then watch yourself so that you, look at these words, do not forget Adonai. 
who brought you out of, from the land of Egypt from the house of slavery. We are called to remember the goodness of God. Do you remember where you were before you knew the Lord and what your life has been like since? Now, it may not have been always easy, but you were delivered out of the bondage of sin, out of the slavery to sin. Do you remember? Remember those things time and time again. Reflect upon them, and it will break through the apathy. Again, in Deuteronomy 8, he says this. You are to remember all the way that Adonai, your God, has led you these 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble you, to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments, his mitzvot, or not. So what is he saying? He's saying, I want you to remember. Remember what I have done. Remember my goodness. Psalm 77, I will remember the deeds of Adonai. Yes, I will muse about your wonders of old. God is calling us to remember. Do you know that, in fact, that Jesus himself calls us to remember? And that's what we're going to do in just a few minutes. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus wanted us to remember what he had done on our behalf. Do you often reflect on the work that Jesus did for you? God is seeking people that will trust him above all else, and he is seeking people that will continuously remember him and his goodness. Number three, and the final one, God seeks people who are wholly devoted to him. And let's look back at the story of King Asa. It goes on to say this. Note these words. For the eyes of Adonai range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are wholly his. See those words? God is looking throughout all of the earth and he is looking at and looking for people whose hearts are wholly his. A divided heart is a heart that is God and me and a battle over who's going to be in control. A heart that is wholly devoted to him is a heart that is completely surrendered. Christ, I am giving you all of my heart and all of my life. Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. You put yourself on the cross, and you say, Jesus, from now on, I want to be wholly surrendered to you. Does not mean that everything is going to just be perfect all the time, and that you will never slip back and make mistakes. It means, God, my heart is fully yours, and I want to be fully following you. I am wholly devoted to you. Proverbs 3, it says, Trust in Adonai with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Isn't that what King Asa did? God, I've got a better plan. I'm not going to lean on you. I'm going to come up with my better way, my better plan. I'll take care of this on my own. Really? It backfired big. 
I won't do that anymore. I'm going to follow you with all of my heart, not being wise in my own eyes, instead fearing at an eye and turning away from evil. Psalm 119, it says, happy are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with a whole heart. Finally, Jesus said this, one of the most important verses in the Bible. He said to the one asking him, which is the great commandment? He said, you shall love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. The second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. God is seeking people who will be wholly devoted to him. God is seeking people who will trust him above all all others, that will remember continually his grace and what he has done, who are wholly devoted to him. If I added a number four point in here, and if I had time to, the point would be this, God seeks people who humbly admit they're wrong and repent and turn back to him. Sadly, as we end the story of King Asa, he did not do that. He started extremely well, but he ended extremely poorly. Sadly, the remainder of King Asa's life is disappointing. Instead of humbly admitting to God, I was wrong, I am sorry, please God, can you please forgive me? He, instead of doing that, he turned and he took out his anger, his guilt-produced anger on the prophet and the people that were closest to him. He never did turn back to God fully, He never did surrender his heart fully. He did not repent and say, God, I am sorry. And as a result of that, he would suffer the consequences of a crippling disease. This doesn't have to be our story. If we trust him above all others, if we remember continually what he has done, if we are wholly devoted to him, God will bless and lead you for the rest of your life. How do you live a godly life in an ungodly world? You do it leaning into God. There is no other way. Hey, thanks for listening to that message. We hope that it inspired you to trust the Lord, to treasure people, and to transform our world with the saving gospel message of Jesus Christ. If God is leading you to give to Journey, head to our website, journeychurchgillette.com, and hit the give icon in the bottom right-hand corner. Your gift helps us to continue providing resources like this every single week. Also, be sure to follow us on social media and check out our website for updates and additional information. God bless you guys and have a great day.